Welcome to In A Good Way Podcast. My name is Pratik, and I'm here with your co-host, Jacob. And today we have some very special guests. We have Andrew and Sean. It's great to be here. It is. <laughs> so, um, as we all know, Andrew is, um, you know, the president, I'm assuming, of his life ball club? With Sean. R- round Neck Club. Round Neck Club is what they call it. Presidents. Round Neck Club. Round Neck Covering you legally. Thank you. Thank you. And, um... It's been a great uh, pleasure having them and uh, talking to them. Um, and one of the main concepts we want to talk about on kind of the topic of uh, <laughs> Roundnet is <laughs> the death of modern sports. Why we're laughing is because Sean just dropped an ice cube, so um, he's currently reaching down to pick it up. I'm oh, then he put it back in the glass. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, guys, but um, the death of modern sports... <laughs> So, Andrew, would you like to kick us off? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. So, with the death of modern sports, I believe that uh, slowly modern sports are dying for two main reasons. Uh, one, people are just not in front of the, in front of the TV um, as much as they used to be. Now people are on the go using their phones, and some of the modern sports <clears throat> leagues haven't adapted to that. Uh, they have not uh, provided... Uh, ways to uh, stream stuff on the go. And then the second way I would say is that people's uh, attention spans aren't just as long as they used to be. Um, I remember back in the 90s. Well, not me. <laughs> wow. I, oh, well, no. uh, I used to watch old basketball games where the score was placed on the screen once every five minutes because people used to watch the games the, for the entire time. Oh, wow. Now, wow. Um, now the scores are always on the screen. Not only that, we see statistics on how many points people have. Um, always on the screen as well. So that's my thinking on why modern sports are on the decline. Why do you think that is? Why do you <laughs> think that um, attention spans are decreasing? Uh, I think it's because now with um, complete access to cell phones and social media and stuff like that, um, we're always looking... Thing, I, I think it was something that now our attention spans are seven seconds or something like that. That's why uh, Vine used to be so popular. Uh, because... Yep, and I think I lost Pratik's attention, so we're going to well, go. I like how we're talking about decreased attention spans on a podcast episode. That'll probably be 45 minutes or more. So please stay. Yeah, please stay. Don't leave. It's okay. You know, you, every several seconds, we say something important. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think on the basis of that, I want to kind of jump into revenue streams, um, specifically with the NBA. Um, NBA revenues <laughs> have been declining, um, and that's been more recently, after, you know, historical growth in... Um, uh, 2016 and 2017, um, and even 2018, um, but 2019 and 2020, it's been declining. Um, and the NBA salary cap, as a reason, has um, fallen short of expectations this year. So um, uh, ratings have also declined. Um, but at the same time, the NBA seemingly has been the most, you know, has been more fun to watch this year because, you know, uh, talent is mm. diversified, team yeah. uh, players <laughs> are on different teams. So my question kind of goes um, to Sean. Why do you think NBA ratings are declining? Well, a lot of it does go to what you were saying about the the diversification of talent among the league. Uh, you're getting a bunch of young players who are really good. Um, but there's the one problem is that like it, the world is becoming busier and busier, and so now you can't just or like it's becoming. Like less easy to just sit down and watch a full game because everyone's running on a very bloodthirsty schedule and and it 
it takes it takes a lot more effort just to take it because if you think about like an NFL game for example that's like three hours out of your day and like Super Bowl coming up that's going to be like four or five hours it's going to be a long event well like events like those are different because they have like Super Bowl has a very deep meaning behind it so like obviously and it has like but like I was saying it has like a young player like Patrick Mahomes everyone who is like impressed with these young players and so there's always like this chance of ratings going up a little bit because of how like how good the new people like new players are becoming well i think super bowl is a good example of one of the things that works pretty well because super bowl is one game Mm -hmm. so people sit down and watch that like the world series in baseball i think it gives a more accurate view of who's who's better because it can be seven games at a maximum Mm -hmm. but each game's not going to get the same amount of viewership or coverage as a one-game Super Bowl. And I think that people actually prefer the one-game method. Uh, you look at March Madness. Yeah, people will watch March Madness um, or college basketball, even though they haven't watched college basketball all year, mm-hmm. um, just because the the chance of an upset or yeah. the chance of a shocking event occurring. Same with the Super Bowl. And um, even with... Um, even with the college football playoffs, mm-hmm. we see a large <clears throat> tune-in for that where an undefeated team can lose or stuff like that. And it's better for business. I mean, look at the Super Bowl. How much does an advertisement cost? Millions. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm really just waiting for the Pickle Rick flavored Pringles ad. There's an ad for that? Yeah, they're buying a Super Bowl ad. There's going to be Pickle Rick flavored Pringles at every store in a little bit. I want that. Me too. <laughs> I'm if you look up the a, container, in a good way, more. commercial. In a good Whoa, way, a big fan. We should do that. Of the Super Bowl commercial. Uh, Ooh, round that. Round that. Round that. Not cool. <laughs> I think we should. Bu- what about we pay for one commercial with both? Ah, uh, let me describe my million dollars real quick. Whoa, Here we go. I like that. And Sean, Yours, we you guys can't see this, but Sean just commercial. pulled out a million dollars and he's stacking uh, it up. Oh yeah. yeah. I put it in my wheelbarrow under the table. Oh yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you, Sean. Of course. Um, but I want to kind of move on to the ways to watch. So, um, <laughs> Sean, describe another ice cube. <laughs> I'll stop with the ice. Okay, I'll stop with the ice. I have a weird problem with just eating ice. <laughs> no, Sean, go on. We won't judge you. But, um, yeah, ways to watch. Yes, we will. So, the thing with NBA and um, basically there are more streaming services, right? Like, for example, um, YouTube TV. Yeah. That's a big streaming service. But at the same time, Ooh. the problem that exists is blackouts. Yeah, I mean, MLB TV, anytime the Yankees, which is the team I watch, plays in Texas, or at least in the Dallas area, I can't watch the games. I have to go to the Rangers stadium. And personally, guys don't hate me, but I'm not a big fan of the Mavericks. So, I, for example, like, let's say I want to watch some Lakers game or some Miami Heat um, games. That's something I would prefer than watching a Mavericks team, but at the same time, I can't watch that because, you know, it doesn't show up on um, the the TV stations here. And, um... To buy, you have to buy something like NBA League Pass. But even if you buy NBA League Pass, then some games, approximately like half of the games for like, um, like I was about if I want to watch Heat or like Lakers, are blacked <laughs> out because of local media coverage. So I think that um, there has to be something that these large organizations, um, sport organizations, come up with a solution for like whether it's like a league-wide streaming service or um, a combined. For example, like let's say the NFL and, the, and NBA partner up. Um, and create a streaming service for that. I think that would be Wait. a huge hit. Something that makes you get 
every game. Yeah. Would be great too. Like MLB TV, I can't watch postseason. I can't watch World Series. All that's blocked off. And ESPN I feel like to do Sling that. TV every time there's a World Series or postseason. And I feel like the problem with that too is that um, even if that was possible, I guarantee that would be at least forty five dollars a month. Oh yeah. And oh, yeah. some people just want to, like, if you're an NFL fan and you just want to watch one out-of-state team, that's not worth right. it to you, which would probably yeah. cause you... What if they made it so you paid by the team? That could be interesting, But too. either way, think about it. How much does the NFL, like, the like the NFL, like, um, like CBS, NBC, how much do they pay for NFL games? They pay a lot of money. Yeah, they so do. So, basically, what the NFL would have to do is generate the money... And basically guarantee that they would be able to generate the same amount of money from us that that they do from like uh, you know broadcast stations, which is hard to guarantee, especially you know when that money is being used to pay um, player salaries, which I don't think players would gamble on, especially with you know the collective bargaining agreement ending in I think um, 2021. Um, and I personally think the players are going to give a lot more power in that agreement. I think. Um, because I know in the NBA, players have gained tons of power. I mean, look at LeBron James. Um, he's been able to single-handedly... I remember like when he first joined the Cavaliers, their net worth was, I think, just around $500 million or something like that. Um, and um, when he when he, um, when he he was just about to leave, it was uh, like something around like 1.2, 1.4. And then it dropped when he left again um, back to the Lakers. So um, I personally think... Uh, one player has the power to change nearly a billion dollars. Well, a lot especially of that, in LeBron James. Yeah. yeah, but a lot of that has to do, like if you look between different leagues, it all depends on. It really depends on the sport you're playing yeah. because you can have an impact player in basketball because there's only five people on the court at one oh, time. That's a good point. But mm. on the NFL, you always have at least eleven on each side, and then you always have substitutions, and like one person can be important, but he's not going to be the same game changer that like. Yeah. An NBA superstar. I mean, yeah. look at Aaron Rodgers. I think that's the closest yeah. example to that, in my opinion. Even him, mm-hmm. I don't think he can remain at least like in the NFL. You know, there's so many injuries. It's a mm-hmm. violent sport. I mean, the nature of it is that <clears throat> man goes down, somebody steps up. Mm-hmm. That's what a good team are made out, right? I mean, look at the Saints. Um, they have so many good quarterbacks. They have three starting caliber quarterbacks. Right. Um, I think those teams need those amount of backups to really succeed in the NFL for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the question still goes back to, can these teams and can these boards innovate quickly enough to um, capture yeah. our interests and allow and give fans new ways to watch? Well, bring back what made them popular. A lot of sports became popular because people they had a connection to people. People felt like they could. Um, take part in it, watch the games, they could then play a game, you know, they could play basketball at home or football, anything like that, and then they could watch it really easily. And as it gets more difficult to watch, it loses a lot of the appeal. And I think an excellent example of that is the return of the XFL. Mm. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. They're back where the Rangers used to play. Yeah, um, and, I mean, the, the whole advertising, you know, component of the yeah. XFL is bring back football, you know, like... With forward laterals, though. Yeah, f- yeah, basically, you know, like, more injuries, more hitting, um, what football really is about. 
Right. Do you think it'll be like successful and bring Oh, hundred percent no. Oh, no. I, I don't. There's, I don't think there's any chance. Yeah, I don't think it'll be successful. I don't think... It might be fun to go to a few games though. Yeah. I think the problem with the XFL is it'll be kind of like the D League, where mm-hmm. the best players oh, will never play in the XFL. I don't think it will be like the D League, and the reason why that uh, I think it's because um, one, I don't think the NFL. I think the NFL views <laughs> it more of a competition, and I think that's what the hmm. XFL is compa- uh, compa- uh, trying to be. Well, who'd they get? They they took someone who used to play on it. I think they they took like more backup quarterbacks or like yeah, or it's third string. Like it's backups. it's not really There's anyone no, like, significant. Yeah. Um, but I can see where you're coming from. But I think the NFL, I don't think it's gonna happen with the XFL because their marketing strategy is all based off of like hard hitting, mm-hmm. um, you know, like different rules, kind of like the Canadian Football League. But the Canadian Football League is still like, it's their own separate thing. I think the other thing with the XFL, too, yeah. is that the, another part of their advertising is football when football's not around. Like, they start, I think, when is it? May. Yeah. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere around yeah. in May when, when we leave the NFL. So I almost don't think that they're trying to compete at all because you can watch the NFL and then continue to watch the XFL and they don't have to compete at all. So I think that, that, that they actually have that going for them. But, but at the yeah, same time, I don't think young players are going to risk their health. Or... Well, even other than that, remember there was like the same situation last year where they came out with that football league? Um, I don't remember what it was called. Arena football league? No. No, it wasn't arena, but it was something last year or maybe the year before where they had a right after football ended, they... They um they basically had a second football league. I think that was the XFL. I don't think it was XFL. It was like AFL or something. I don't oh, remember. Yeah, I think it was the American Football League or something. Like yeah, that. something yeah. like that. And like the first game was really popular because everyone wanted to watch football, and it was on like CBS. But then like all the games after that, everyone kind of realized like this isn't really good football to watch because it's like you have like mediocre players playing on some random NFL channel now that. It's not generating like nearly as much views, and end up just go, like going bankrupt, I think. And like so, that's why I don't think the XFL would work as well. I remember watching a video about this. Um, the last game the XFL ever played, um, I think, had around seven or eight interceptions total. Wow. <laughs> and I think, I think there were at least ten players that got carted off the field, or like that, that got hurt. Oh wow. Well, I remember the and they're yeah. rebranding too, because the original XFL was part of the um, World Wrestling Federation, which is now the WWE. That was part of Vince McMahon, so right? They, yeah. What? Yeah, that was part of, like, Vince... How, how would you say his last name? Vince McCannon, or... Because he does both, so. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, but they stuck in... They're doing it a little different. Like, they used to... Originally, they stuck in a lot of uh, WWE sort of elements into it. I can... Yeah, I can see that. But now they're doing it more like normal football. I personally don't think it'll work. Um, not at all. Yeah, I just think the biggest problem is like talent. No one's gonna watch. They're basically watching like people who would, could never make it to the NFL. I don't say never, but like they don't have like nearly as much talent as like an NFL. So it's gonna be like harder to watch. I don't think NFL teams give these players that many chances. I mean, NFL teams historically want to stick to the you know to the way of like. The things have been like, hey, you go to college for like typically three years on mm-hmm. um, three or four years, and then graduate and enter the draft. I mean, you ne- you ne- you, ne- you never see like a first year or second year player entering the NFL. Um, but in the NBA, I think like you know the NBA is trying to relax more. I mean, I think there might be even take out the rule that um, players have to attend college. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I think. But I do think that things will change after the collective bargaining agreements, and I think there will mm-hmm. be a holdout. I think there will be a big holdout. Um, 
I think players should stand up for their rights. I think there should be some major changes instead of in terms of safety. But I think all sports have to come to a like look at what their streaming advertisements uh, things are. And I know it's a complicated thing because um, there's so much money involved. And the main reason there are blackouts are for the money. Local media pays for it, so um, you know they can show their exclusive agreements. But um, there has to be a point where the consumers have the bargaining power to you know push uh, push aside these large corporations and i think that will come but i think it will take a couple of years at the very minimum but i think it'll be done in the next decade um so i think the next thing you want to transition into uh is the morality discussion segment and this is in honor of the black history month um since this podcast will be coming out in february um, so our first topic right there is um, historically black college and universities um, and really the merits of them. I personally think they're very underrated in society um, and especially I don't think they're talked about enough. Um, so uh, to, uh, does anybody want to talk more about them? Yeah, so I applied to two historically black colleges um, this year. Um, but I definitely think that their impact on society is definitely not talked about enough. Um, we don't even, like, yes, we see the education of um, young African-American males and females, but we also see how they um, do community outreach to try to produce um, future prospects for college in the future. Um, and you just don't see that with, normally with colleges. Um, and I think the other issue is how... <laughs> I think the other issue how is how they aren't... Uh, compared to the same standard as um, prestigious white colleges. Yeah, yeah and I think oh. it's like if you look at the particular chewing ice. There's, Again. there's nothing funny about what you're saying. So. <laughs> but um, notable alumni, I thought. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. There was nothing funny about what Andrew yeah, said. It was just your <laughs> ice. Uh, yeah, and I think <laughs> you. Why is ice so funny? I, I think <laughs> Just it's because John dropped the ice the first time. <laughs> yeah, but, um... I think it's really. I, I agree with Andrew and Ritik. I think it's really important what the HBCUs have done to help with education. And These universities have yeah. really helped to empower people to make a difference and should be respected for those prior contributions. And they continue to help work with communities and educate people. And if you look at the notable alumni for some of these universities, like I'm looking at Howard University, there are tons of notable alumni that, um, for example, um, you look at um, Sean Diddy Combs, you look at Elijah Cummings, um, you know, a respected congressman. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, yeah these, these are all respected. Kamara Harris. Um, these are all people that have um, achieved very high positions in society. Martin you know, Luther King, Thurgood Marshall. Oh, I mean, yes, this, amazing. This goes on and on. Yeah, um, you got uh, Jeremiah Wright. Um, you got tons of uh, you know African American leaders in politics. Um, all time, all parts of society, musicians, um, artists. So I personally think that they should be recognized more in you know national rankings. I personally uh, don't haven't seen them much in national rankings or even talked about in the national media. Um, but my question kind of goes back to um more of a little bit about cultural appropriation and about you know non-african americans going to these universities um and andrew i want your opinion on that yeah so my opinion on that is that if someone is educated enough to um see the benefit in going to an hbcu despite race 
Um, I think that they should have the. Com- I think they should have um, that. A- I, I think they should have the access to that, um, especially if you look at some people. Um, actually, a few years ago, there was a white guy that grew up with black parents um, in a predominantly black uh, district. I think it was in Chicago, and he was the valedictorian of a historically black college. So, do I think that um, white people shouldn't be allowed to go to historically black colleges? No, I think that. If you are a white person trying to attend a historically black college, I think that says something about you on how you are as a person. Especially, I, yeah, especially with being like a Val, like you were saying, like there's a lot of opportunities to go with that, and then ha- choosing a historically black cl- college, like it helps the general. Like you were saying, it was like it's under underrated, I guess, uh, in the sense that it's it's definitely not as known as like uh, other top universities in America. And having like having the like uh, a solid amount of like top people going to each college, it really helps like the case in general. Yeah, um, and I think it goes back to really the whole debate about. I mean, it, I mean, for example, like if you look at like elite college universities that have like you know like the status quo, like you look at Harvard, um, all these Ivy Leagues. They historically have been um, trying to, like, you know, like, especially push more for African-American enrollment and minorities um, recently. But I personally think that, um, what do you think, Andrew, the benefits are of going to an HBCU over some of those prestigious college universities? Right, and before I touch on that, I want to touch on what you said, how, um, like, you have the Ivies looking for more diversity. And I have no idea on the top of my head, if you want to look it up, like, the the, uh, demographics of Harvard, saying that they are looking for... Um, a more diverse background. Um, we see here that Harvard is looking at. Yeah, well, I think it. There. I think it goes back to like. Um, I personally think the the whole debate about like affirmative action is a little bit overstated, and I'll tell you why. Um, in my opinion, and um, I think this is about if you go to a college. Like, for example, any any of us goes to a college, we want to see a diverse community. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it goes back to, um, I want to see a, a community that is not only intellectually gifted, um, but motivated and, um, you know, from different commu- different yeah. backgrounds. I don't want to, you know, all seem to see the same people from one city. Well, and this relates back to what I was talking to you yeah. about earlier. I used to go to a Catholic school for um, maybe like four years around middle school and elementary school and pretty much everyone there was the same person like personality yeah. they, they were all um they were all you know um white cat you know catholic people and there wasn't any <clears throat> cultural diversity and i feel like if you're raised in an environment where everyone's similar like that like these people were the exact same they had no de- i mean i'm not dissing white people but the people who went to that school were a cookie cutter mold they were all the same person can i ask you a question did they have did they all have the same academic drive they were no they had no academic drive okay they had um they had one kid who they basically said you are really smart and that was about the extent of their academic drive i agree with both of you guys but i just want to play devil's advocate here yeah so what i'll say is if you look for example like let's look at ib right right there is a stereotype of people from IB, right? 
uh, we're all driven, all we do is steady, right? right? But we know that that could be, at least I know, that could not be further from the truth, right? I don't know. Yeah. Do you guys agree? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think... Critique never studies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not I'm saying that. I'm just thinking, like, we really have people that have diverse interests. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I know people who are involved in extra, uh, extraordinary um, extracurricular activities, I'm starting with, obviously, you two. Um, amazing really drive with um, Spike, well... Brown Dad, sorry. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, like the point I think still remains. I think the I think um, if you I think it does make sense to view people like for example like from your um, your former uh, school as being the same, but at the same time, well, yeah, I I, I think spent, in my experience, yeah, 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 they were all incredibly similar. So like, um, it was go ahead. So like uh, I'm gonna go back to answering your question now on what what are the <laughs> benefits, right? So you look at um, the Catholic school that Jacob was talking about. Um, everyone was white, similar, and no academic drive. You look at IB, um, majority brown, and with academic drive. But for me, I never had that at all. So going to his, uh, an HBCU, I can be surrounded by people that look like me and have an academic drive, which, um, especially in Plano, just doesn't exist. Like, you look at IB, there's two two black people, right? Mm-hmm. But if I went to an HBCU, I'd be surrounded by people that looked like me, had similar interests, and um, had the same academic drive. But at the same time, um, saying that they look like me and had similar interests doesn't mean that we all came from the same cultural background. You have kids that came from um, the rural parts of Georgia or the inner cities of Chicago or a kid that grew up in Plano. So uh, you put all those kids together, and I think it really it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, I think really, I think cultural diversity is really important, but I think even more important is a mental diversity, a diversity of interests and thought processes. And that definitely comes with cultural diversity, but that's what really makes change when you are able to see things different ways. And I think it comes from experiences like Andrew was talking about. Like you have um, people coming from you know urban neighborhoods, suburbs. Like uh, Plano is you know one of the one of the richest suburbs um, in the United States. Um, so you you have like you have this diverse mindset, right? You have people from diverse income uh, income. You have diverse people who have seen different things, right? You have people who lit- who grew up in not very good conditions and um then you have people like the suburbs right so i think getting those type of people is something that is absolutely beautiful and i think it's unparalleled in any academic experience because you really get to understand how these people like why do they think the way they do and i think that's really amazing for politics uh politics as well i mean especially in this country like right now we are so divided more so than ever before we really need to understand where we're coming from. And that doesn't yeah. mean that we necessarily have to agree with them. It's just, hey, I understand you were raised this way. You mm-hmm. saw these things. So I completely understand well, yeah. your viewpoint. And I think it's really important, no matter who you're talking to, 100%. to understand they think the way they do because of things they've gone through, right. because of things they've seen. And just because they disagree with me on this one issue does not make them a bad person. I'm still capable of talking to that, these people. And that's what breaks down a lot now. But I think that's definitely a really important realization. Yeah, and, like, for example, I'll just, like, go back to you and me. Like, I don't think you and I agree on pretty much any political issue. We do on a few. Well, I'm, okay, a few, a few, a few. A few. But at the same time, I mean, like, and I think it goes back to, like, obviously, it goes back to our experiences, right? Um, and, and I really want to talk about more about, like, um, the fact that everyone can still see eye to eye. No matter their different experiences, yeah. backgrounds, um, cultures, race, 
right. ethnic background, religion, etc. I think it's really important to also remain open to other viewpoints because there are things that might be outside what you previously think that could definitely make more sense than what you already think. I think it's really important to not divide yourself along any sort of ideological lines where you 100%. just agree with people to agree with them. I think you need to agree with what you think is correct, not just because someone you respect says something. And it goes back to asking, why do you believe that? Yeah. And Sean, what do you think? Can you, can you further explain what you mean? What do you, like, about what? Oh, um, <laughs> Dick's chewing ice again. Ah. What do you, so, what... Uh, what? How do you feel about the importance of being open to other viewpoints? Uh, I think it's very important because I think the biggest problem with why everyone is so politically and socially divided is that everyone takes a single viewpoint and runs with it. And it's really being able to listen in and see other viewpoints because you may like accept what... You may realize something that you hadn't known before and that could change your viewpoint and it could end overall in, as a better result and um i think that's a really good place to transition to our uh, next topic and i want to talk more about um you know words that are offensive to um minorities um and um i want to talk more about how do you think those words really became like what gives the word their power yeah, and do you think those words are empowering to those respective communities or not? Um, I think that the word used, or specifically the N-word, I think that's probably the only um, example where it could be empowering to anyone. Yeah, so if you look at other words that are used to tear down people, um, I think that you can only relate it back to the N-word on how it is used currently that can still be empowering to some people. Um, which I think sparks the t uh, the the discussion on is um, <laughs> I think it sparks the discussion on <laughs> whether um, whether it is empowering and um, despite its empowerment should it be used by anyone what, what do y'all think on that <laughs> I answered, sorry, I saw you guys. We were not laughing at Andrew when Andrew said we were laughing. More ice. More, he keeps chewing on ice. I'm it's sorry, it's so good. Um. <laughs> um, for, like, my opinion is, it's it's really difficult to form an opinion for me because there's no, and I, not that I can think of, there's no real offensive words that would hurt me personally. So I don't want to, I can't, like like the n-word for example like i like all of these are like bad words to say but i do believe that it can be an empowering factor because just of like the social implications it had in the past and then the fact that it created a created a unity between like african americans in the past um but then you have other words like other derogatory words that um that they they're simply used for the insult and have nothing else and so that those those can't really in my opinion yeah. and they haven't been adopted anything. by those communities either yeah, yeah. and I, I think this is another topic that i don't really have as much experience on like mm -hmm. there are derogatory words yeah, like, for italians but nobody mm -hmm. uses them here but oh, you breadstick 
Uh, I find it really interesting that such a word could go from something that's such that could only be used as an insult to bring people down as something that's been so adopted in things like rap music. And I don't think it's our place to say yeah, whether... I, mean, I don't think I can say whether someone should be offended. I think that's a personal thing, how someone's raised and how they've heard such a word. And I think used. that's a moral dilemma here. Um, like... Like, I would never say any of those yeah, words. I, yeah, we, we would never say any of those words, but um, I think the, the argument that people make is that, um, once again, not, not of our viewpoints, but um, the, just playing, remember, because In A Good Way podcast represents both sides of the argument. Basically, the argument people use is that um, since those communities use it, we can use it as well. But the problem with that is I think that there is a fine line between that. And I think it is that, it's, first of all, it's not your opinion to decide whether that word is offensive to your community. Well, it's not your word. Exactly. You don't, that word does not have a connection to you. or And it's not supposed yeah. to. I mean, so. it's like the difference between denotation and connotation. Exactly. That's it, a great example. It's not necessarily what is said, but who is saying it in a lot of situations. So then I have a question for y'all, and uh, y'all can take this how you, how you please. Um, if you, you guys are saying like the word especially the n-word um, it's someone's word right so if you have let's say a first generation African who has just came to America is he allowed to say the n-word if his ancestors were not affected by that word whatsoever that's a really good question that's very deep and here's what I'll say for that I mean look at it I don't think there's like I mean realistically like I think the only right answer to do this which I know is completely impossible but um uh, <laughs> you stop laughing at us I'm sorry but um basically like for example <laughs> sorry Andrew just went down the the glass, yeah, the, the glass I no longer have any ice <laughs> but um, I think I really think... it depends on who's around the person and how they're using it. For example, like... I mean, I... someone like that, nobody's gonna look at him and hear him saying it and say, you were not here first. Yeah. You weren't affected by this word. Because it's not something that's necessarily noticeable. But it, it's just a personal thing, whether that person feels comfortable with it and the people that they associate with feel comfortable with it. So then, I guess devil, devil's advocate there is if you have a white man that comes from South Africa... You could say the exact same argument for him. You could. I don't. But here's the thing. How for, could you say the same argument? What I'm saying is like you're you're saying that um, it's whether he feels comfortable with the word, right? So oh. if you say that, can anyone feel comfortable with? The oh word? no, I just mean people who could theoretically be affected. Like I think South Africa is especially a place someone from there would not be allowed to say mm -hmm. such a word, especially after apartheid and things. I think that's a place where they, if, they also had their own yeah. words though, like. The N-word was not used in South Africa. It would, mm. They used completely other words that were derogatory. But, um, Andrew, do you think that, um, you know, because since the N-word was, was used to discriminate against African Americans, not really Africans, Right. Yeah. do you think that Africans, you know, being of African descent, should be able to say that word? My, my, here's my thought on it. Um, I kind of think of it as a cultural thing. So if you would place this person surrounded by, um, let's just say, the scariest person you could think of, um, would they be comfortable saying the word? And if the answer is yes, then I think you've answered your own question. Well, I mean, mm. if in that case, I look at 
you know, um, individuals who are not African-American who grew up in those communities, though, um, and are comfortable saying the word. And, you know, their, their friends that are African-American, let them say it. Do you My, think that's right? The same thing. If they would be comfortable saying it around complete strangers, then I think you've answered the question. And I guarantee most people who technically, by quote-unquote people that say don't have the right, will not say it um, around people that they don't feel comfortable around saying it. But if you look at someone that, that we said is like African per se, who, te who technically should not have the right, they are technically comfortable with saying it around complete strangers. So I think it really, I think it's a more social aspect than anything. Yeah, and I think most people, especially now, watch themselves and avoid Definitely. saying things like that if it's something that they don't think they should I would be actually saying. have to disagree with that. And the reason I say is because look at the Latino community. Um, you look at like rappers, like for example, like Takashi 69 when he started, he said that word a lot. Right. And it, he, that's not like an isolation. There have been p plenty of rappers, um, you know, like that, like for example, in the Latino community. I mean, they even look at like Indian rapper, like Nav. There was a, he, there were plenty of songs he had on his SoundCloud that obviously took down, um, that said that word. Um, and he got, a, he got called out for it a lot. Um, Takashi 69 did not get the same treatment though. Right. And he hasn't taken those songs down and I don't think he has any intention to do so. Obviously, he has friends in those communities. I mean, he's he is affiliated with many gangs. Um, obviously, due to it, like you know, you can check up on his legal history there. But um, I think my question goes back to: Do you think it's okay for him to say the word? I mean, he's obviously comfortable saying it in public. He has no shame in it. Where do you think the line is there? I think the line. Um, I mean, that's obviously a hard question. Um, I think it goes case by case. Um, but if you look at, let's just say, Takashi 6 9 for example, and you compare him to someone that has experienced uh, racism um, pertaining to the African-American community, I think it's almost a slap in the face to that community mm -hmm. um, yeah. to almost embrace that word um, but not be able to bear the consequences of the word as well. I think it's a double-sided... It's, it's almost... Um, Do you think a, he does bear the consequences of it, though? I mean, because... Takashi Six Nine, from a legal perspective and from like a gang affiliated perspective, he has had his fair share of, you know, racist incidences. Right. So I would say that you have a difference between putting yourself in those situations and being born into those situations. Yeah. Um, you look at gangs. Um, I would say there's a, I'd say about twenty five percent of people don't have a choice on whether they can be put in a gang or not. Um, they're put into gangs for survival. But then you look at people like Takashi Six Nine who want to be in gangs for uh, fame and stuff like that. And power. Right. So if you say that um, them embracing the culture um, by, go ahead. And I think that kind of relates back to. Um... Actually, Andrew, I completely agree with you on that. Um, but I think that relates to more of a bicultural thing, um, and I think that we can all relate to that in a sense, um, since we pretty much all have two cultures uh, that we kind of, um, you know kind of like uh, identify with uh, and that goes to bicultural fragmentation which we have learned in um, you know about Native American culture as well but I think that applies to our own identity uh, and kind of just to explain the concept it basically you know when you grow up you were grown up in your native culture um, your uh, for example like for Sean and I it was with Indian American Indian and we uh, grew up celebrating the same holidays um, practicing um, you know, uh, the same the same events, um, watching the same movies, cultural icons. Um, but then at a certain point, when we reached like high school or middle school, we saw that, you know, 
hey, things are different in America, and there are other events that we celebrate in America. For example, Christmas, um, uh, you know, like uh, other stuff. Like, for example, like we were just talking about family dinners. That's not something that happens a lot in the Indian community. So my question here is, how do you, relevant do you think bicultural fragmentation is in the U.S.? And how do you think you relate to it? For example, like, do you think you identify more with your culture that you were, uh, bro um, you know, uh, born with or the culture that you are in now? So, for me, personally, uh, I'll let someone else go first. I'll come back. Sean? All right. Uh, for me, I definitely think it, this has definitely, like, been a big part of my life. But in between, like, Indian and American, uh, it's kind of a hard divide, but I would probably lean more towards, like, I've blended more with the American part of it, uh, simply because, like, if you look at my parents, they were both born in India, and even my sister, like, she lived there for two years, but I'd, I've only visited, like, at, like, a, for, like, a few weeks at most, and so I've never had the, like, full culture, uh, like, been immersed in the full cu culture, other than, like, movies and, uh, different events, like, gar Garba and different things like that. And it's just, especially like you, what you were saying about being in high school, um, it's like it's hard to, it's really hard to go out and explore more about it when you're on such a, a difficult schedule. And it's really like you kind of have to adapt to what's being placed around you. So I think just in general, it can be hard to keep your initial like mother culture just because everything's always changing around you so that you're gonna have you're gonna have to change yourself in order to more or less fit in to what what you're being placed in and i think this is the age group where we're all really trying to you know find ourselves especially senior year mm -hmm. the whole point is you know to really understand who you are before you go off to college and um either live with yourself or in a dorm or whatever the case may be um you still want to you know be more independent as we're about to be adults um so personally, I, I agree with Sean. Um, mm -hmm. I have gotten in touch more with my American side, um, but it's for a different reason. I have visited India many times. Um, my uh, Once again, my brother actually like uh, lived there for like a year or two. Um, but personally, I think that um, it, it's a different it's a different situation. I mean, when you've seen when you've seen the uh, when you see like the Indian heritage, right? When I've seen the Indian side, I've I think it's kept me more in touch with reality. Mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, what people don't have. I've yeah. seen um, the poverty of India. Mm -hmm. I've seen the overpopulation it has. Uh, so my family, um, at least my, my dad and my mom actually were both from uh, New Delhi or like mm -hmm. or the Gurgaon, like, you know, like the populated areas. Mm -hmm. But then um, re like a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to South India and, and um, Kerala. Um, and that was one of the best experiences of my life. And it was because I saw something that I never thought I would see. It was, you know, it was so green. Um, it was, mm -hmm. there was so much, so much nature there. Um, and I personally think it just helps me put things into perspective. And I think it helped me shape my American identity even more. Mm -hmm. It helped me realize that what we have here is something that we really need to be, uh, we need to really be thankful for. But at the same time, I don't think we need to forget our mother culture. I just think it's we need to adapt it. For example, like I'm not really strict on celebrating Indian holidays or um, you know like, uh, praying to Indian um, gods or whatever. But at the same time, I think 
it really comes back to what do you personally believe in and why do you believe? I think why is way more important than this. Well, yeah, and I think it's really important to blend the best aspects of both cultures. Yes. Like, I, I'm Italian. My dad's 100%. My mom's, I think, 75% or more. And we have... Um, I identify more as Italian-American than either specific one, which is its own distinctive culture. And it takes... A lot of the American virtues of hard work and things like that emerges it with the emphasis on family life and things like that. And that's one of the things that's really prevalent, I think, uh, from my culture is just this emphasis on family and relationships. And I think that's really important. And one of the things that's always interesting to me is really whenever you see an Italian in a movie, they're going to be in the mafia or something like that. And uh, there are a lot of... I don't really know how I feel about that fully. Because I think some of those movies are really good movies. And they're really interesting. But I also... I don't really feel like it's the nicest when people just... When, you know, I say something... When uh, when, they do is well, what, well, yeah, when they, when they learn that I'm Italian and they ask, Do you have any mafia connections? Would you I mean, you? It's just a... Uh, <laughs> It's not a bad question, but, like, it's just odd to me that that's what it's known for uh, with such culinary traditions and things. So, I don't know. I, I don't entirely mind them. I just know a lot of people do. So, I would I'd say I'm kind of related to Jacob in that, in that sense. Um, I would say, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my like, I said culture... Are the t my two sides are warring with each other. Uh, the African and American side have been warring with, with each other since um, since ba back to slavery. Um, but I would say that another thing is that just subconsciously we have related um, the African American culture with poverty. Mm -hmm. So I would find that that's especially hard for me being from a middle to upper class um, background. Where people are constantly um, questioning me as, um, why are you so white? Why, mm -hmm. why, why do you um, act white? Which I would say my response to that is, does white um, mean class? Because I would say that black class is definitely a thing. Um, so that's where I would say my split is, is um, embodying what class looks like without coming across as white which I feel like is a more societal issue more than anything. Do you think trying to get in touch with your culture is um, something that everyone should do? And if so, if so, how do you think one should go on about that? Um, I think culture is more in the individual. Um, it's, almost, it's very rare that you will see one person share the exact same culture as someone else. Um, everyone's cultures, beliefs, um, religion, nationality, ethnicity are all mixed together, especially here in America, right? So I would say that getting in touch with your personal culture is something that everyone should experience. Um, but at the same time, it's we have to recognize that it's an individual thing as well. So um, this also happens in the black community as well. Um, speaking out on someone saying, you're not black enough. Like that, I, I feel like that's not a thing, right? Um, everyone's culture is individual to that person. And I think, like, relating back to the Indian community, like, for example, um, when I see, you know, um, uh, for example, I've had the privilege of going to India, and Sean, I think you, uh, you've had it, obviously, briefly, but um, mm -hmm. if you look at someone, you know, that is, like, for example, five or six years old, all they've seen is American culture. Um, 
for example, I remember I um, used to be really good uh, close family friends with these toddlers, um, and they grew up watching like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, <laughs> And like these superhero movies, and they knew nothing about you know Indian culture, like um like Bollywood movies, and I mean if you even if you look at someone who's like ten or like twelve years old, they never really knew anything about them. Um, so I think it kind of goes back to, it, I personally think it's very okay if you don't know anything about that culture, but at the same time, I think there has to be a rationale for it. Mm. And I think, for example, um, what you believe in has to be backed up by your own individual beliefs rather than group thinking or what society believes in or what society even wants you to believe in well um, some part of that's like especially like relating with culture you can kind of be limited to what you know because you're saying like you have to believe in you have to believe in it in order to to like get it but sometimes there can be a like like you there can be like a lack of understanding so so like for me it, like i didn't know about a lot of like Indian different like events other than like some of like the the big main ones but it, until I came into high school just because middle school and elementary school I never there was I was like pretty much the only like Indian kid and there was like maybe like two or three others around me but then coming to IB like where everyone is or not everyone but like the very solid majority of everyone is is Indian and so like that really like that's when I learned about like different things uh, like different events and different Indian cultural aspects and I think that was a uh, what you were saying was like you have to like that inner belief but I think I couldn't get that until I was in high school because I, I just hadn't been exposed to it so I didn't know I didn't know about it yeah I kind of agree with you on there um I don't think it's obviously like it's not. I don't think it's anyone's fault. I just think mm -hmm. that um, I think for regardless of what culture you are in, I think I think it goes back to like spirituality versus uh, versus religion, right? For example, you don't have to believe in a speci uh, specific religion um, to be spiritual. For example, um, I pride myself in being very spiritual, but at the same time, mm. I don't think I'm religious. Um, at least not uh, as much as you know, like some others. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just goes back to your individual beliefs and being firm about them. Um, it's not to say they can't change, it's just to say that, um, you know, uh, morality for one person changes. And I think that just goes, kind of goes back, um, or as a perfect segue to our absurd yeah. references segment. Um, and the question for that is, how much do morals hold up in extreme situations? Um, so, um, Jacob, I'm going to let you kind of tackle this first. Yeah, so basically the question here is... If someone's in an extreme situation, like an island where there's no way out, and they have to, you know, they want to survive. I guess, I was going to say they have to survive, but I guess they don't. They just really want to survive, really badly. I mean, what what's the stretch of morality? I think Andrew posed this in a really interesting way. Yeah, so I would say the stretch of morality... Um goes as far as the individual is willing to take it um and for when you're in an extreme situation such as like survival i don't think there is a limit um we see we um we see that mor morals are stretched all the time like even when um death oh, yeah. isn't even an option mm -hmm. and we see that now but i would say that especially in like a dire situation morality is almost thrown out the window and as a society with morals we almost accept that too we accept um 
that in a in a dire situation that morals aren't the same. And I think personally, I think that's part of human nature. Um, not to say I agree with it, but at the same time, I don't think that something we should be constantly fighting rather than that we should be embracing it and understanding hold up i know these morals can be flexible in extreme situations so how do i control that where's the line for me yeah. personally um one thing a good example of this sort of moral rev- relativity would be like today it's not all right to go kill somebody but if you're a soldier fighting in a war yes you need to do that that becomes essential yeah so it, I think it depends on situations a lot of times. Like, same with like, and also the same cause... thing if someone breaks into your house and it's self defense. It's a oh, different yeah, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's completely different. You know, like when you actually go into someone's house. And um... <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll tell you about that. Story. We can't even blame that laughter on the ice. Yeah. yeah, we'll tell you that story um, at the end. Um, but yeah, I think the question, kind of like the example that I think we thought of was. Um, Imagine, you know, you're on a, stranded, on a stranded island and you do have, like, um, a couple people with you or, like, animals. I mean, to what extent do you go to ensure your own survival versus, you know, the betterment of the entire group? Like, because I think, like, society, uh, society, what society would want you to do is, you know, work as a group to, um, you know, plant, um, civilize and, you know, find a society. But at the same time, do you think there is a line when your individual priorities have to be, you know, prioritized over the general welfare of the public? Yeah, so I would say one thing, um, so I'd say two things describe that. I'd say w- the first word is hopelessness, and the second word is love. Um, so with hopelessness, I think society breaks down when there's no hope left, right? Uh, so if you, let's say you're on a desert island with 10 people, and there's no food left, and the hopelessness sets in, that's when... Uh, morality goes out. Would the you window. do that? Would you? What would you do in that case? Uh, there's no food. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know what I would do. Yeah. I think it's impossible to know what you'd do yeah. in a right. situation like that until you're there's in the situation. Too many variables, right? And you just gotta hope you're never in the situation. Yeah. Because I mean, like, I think like the obvious answer is, you know, hey, you wouldn't do anything. You would uh, sacrifice yourself for the. I mean, I think well, that's the easy answer. Right? That's what you'd say, and I think it's the same thing with like the trolley problem, things like that. I think, well, those are interesting things to think about. What is the use? Because even if you decide it yourself previously, what you think you'd do in the actual situation, you might very well do the opposite. Right. So, yeah. And there's a lot of things with philosophy. Um, but I personally love philosophy and um, think it's an amazing concept because it challenges us and forces us to think, hey, why do we believe what we do? And I keep coming back to that point because I think it's so important. I think as a society, we don't ask ourselves that enough. I think we just go along with group thinking, and especially in social media today, um, there are institutions, like, I'm not saying that's fake news, but at the same time, they, they obviously there are, every institution has an agenda, and it's for, you know, corporate um, money, uh, they, for capitalism, and they want money. And as a corporation, you have to understand that. But at the same time, as an individual, you have to go back to the fact that, hey, do you think that um, this is reasonable? But obviously, since we are short on time, I'm going to go back to the Q&A. And this is the question we all want to ask each other. Um, and it's kind of like the base, the main one. Um, it is, how do you get over someone you lost? Famous, personal, um, whether it's someone you cut off like a friend or, um, you know, it's someone that you unfortunately you lost um, 
uh, to a to a passing away. Um, so I want to start it off with Andrew, maybe. Um, yeah. So I want to start with uh, this question was derived from the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and the others involved in that crash. And I say the others just because I personally don't know their names, but I know they are just as important as Kobe Bryant and his daughter dying. Prayers out to them. Um. But back to this question, I think the only way to get over something like this is um, time and um, looking inside yourself and realizing that um, nothing you can do currently will change their death. Um, and you just have to come to terms with that, I think. Yeah, time, there's, there's nothing you can do to speed up the process. Um, people mourn and grieve in different ways. Um, I just, I mean, just if we just talk about Kobe Bryant, like that was a death that really rocked everyone. Uh, even like even when I'm on like, Twitter and you see people who don't even watch basketball who are like in pain of what happened, it's like Kobe is like he was the person that was almost immortal in our eyes. Um, just the person who you think is so amazing and great, and then he just passes away and like it's something you can never expect things like those it takes time and like it's been almost a week and pe people are grieving just as much as they were Sunday when it happened and so I, th I don't think um, like this season like NBA is doing a lot to to help remember uh, Kobe but even with that I don't think there would be a a like a soon way you could move on past it, it yeah there's just no way to know what you're gonna do and you need to definitely work through the and the issues there like the people who end up dying or leaving you would not want you to just continually keep grieving them they'd want you to move on but not forget and i think that's an important equilibrium mm -hmm. to be able to move on from the person and still enjoy your life but not forget the good things they've done and um i'm gonna share what i told you guys before we were recording the podcast um i think personally the worst feeling anyone can ever have is when you're trying to get over someone um and ha you know getting the feeling of uh living life without um basically getting used to living life without someone um and i think that's personally the worst feeling anyone can ever have um because when you realize that's what you're doing you feel, start feeling ashamed, right? You think, mm -hmm. hey, how could you move on with this person? And I'm talking about in the personal or famous sense. Um, for example, with Kobe Bryant, is someone you looked up to every single day. I mean, I remember when, um, for example, like when I was playing basketball growing up, um, every single shot I uh, took was, I said, Kobe. And um, that was something you remember every single time. So like every single time I'm playing basketball, like we just played basketball before this podcast that shot that memory rings in your head and yeah. it, it hits even more with with personal stuff um because you have to get used to the you life without that person and mm -hmm. i think that honestly i think everyone grieves in different ways but just letting people know that you're there for them mm -hmm. and just reaching oh, out to random people especially in your life i think personally that's something i know i haven't done um the best especially in recent months um I'm trying to improve on that, and I advise everyone else does that as well, especially in the um, sudden death of um, Kobe Bryant. Reach out to your loved ones, reach out to your family, reach out to your friends, tell them you love them, tell them you care about them. Um, you never know when it may be too late. Um, and 
especially as you know we're about to graduate yeah. it's the same situation we don't know where we're going to go for college we don't know what life holds for all of us but obviously wish the best for each and every one of you and um just reach out to each other that's something i think i really am going to try to do in these coming months and i think everyone should do the same um on that note well, on an opposite note <laughs> Uh, our next question in the Q&A section was, what is your favorite dessert? It's much less deep. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll start it off, because I'm going to, you know, change the topic a bit, so. Okay. This is upbeat, upbeat I critique. do not, and I quote this, I critique, do not believe in desserts. Okay. Explain. Why? When you I have know a you've dinner. seen them. When you have dinner. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Eat. Eat. What do you do when you have dessert? Eat. Eat. Enjoy. But here's the thing. Think about it. I personally, like, uh, recently, like, dessert has been less tasty and satisfying to me. You know, it's not because I've been trying to lose weight, because trust me, I'm very skinny or, and very short, <laughs> but at the same time, I just don't get the satisfaction anymore. Especially, like, when you're eating alone. Like, I'm saying, like, when you eat with them... <laughs> Dang, bro. Oh, that was very sad. Are you, are you... No, no, when you eat with friends and family, or, like, especially, like, you know, like, a birthday party... That's fun because you joke around with it. I think personally, dessert is more about the experience you have with other people mm. rather mm. than the food itself. I yeah. don't know because me personally, I can just throw on some Zach and Cody, sweet <laughs> life, uh, life on Zach or whatever, and I don't know. Des dessert, it's nice. You get to sit back and relax, and it kind of. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you kind of. I don't. I, I just don't like ice cream though. That's the thing. So, so no, what like, is your favorite? Food that is sweet that you sometimes eat After that you dinner. won't refer to as a dessert. Um, when I was little, and I don't do this anymore that much, but um, I always loved pastries. Pastries. Okay. Okay. And that's kind of with my point where I, I think we're misconstruing the concept of dessert. It doesn't only have to be with dinner, right? You can have a pastry at breakfast, okay? And this goes with my favorite dessert, which is the apple pie from McDonald's. I'm sorry? The apple pie from McDonald's. The best dessert out there by far. Let me tell you why. Um, no, okay. <laughs> let me tell you why. Okay? I want everyone to get close to this. Listen, you can have apple pie for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. So then now, is it really a dessert? Yes, because dessert does not have to only be after dinner. You can have it after you have your Big Mac at lunch. After you have that McRib for dinner, or after you have that, what, what is it, the Egg McMuffin for breakfast. <laughs> Apple pie will always be the best dessert. I don't know if that's I'm the gonna, best diet, you know, Andrew. I'm going to use a dictionary for this. Find it. Merriam-Webster defines dessert as a usually sweet course or dish usually served at the end of a usually. meal. Usually. It says after a meal. At the end of a meal. meal. So yes, for Andrew you. is right, but at the same time... We are not endorsing eating I all think your meals I at McDonald's. Endorse, I endorse the apple pie for He will McDonald's. in fact buy you an apple pie for everyone who goes into, goes there. And goes to Round Neck Club. We uh, buy you an apple pie. Yes. Ooh. Wait, Wednesdays. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was about to say. Um, <laughs> I said, let me get here. <laughs> I oh sorry, go ahead. Go. Oh, okay, I will go. Um, I personally don't have a favorite dessert. I maybe I don't know. Apple pie just never really hit the same for me. It kind of 
Yeah, same. It, it doesn't hit for me. Sorry, but, sorry, but, Andrew. I think you guys are having the wrong apple pie. Have you guys ever been to your black grandma's house and had oh, well, a good <laughs> apple pie? Andrew, I'm sorry, but peach I cobbler. Don't have one. Um, I will bring you a slice of my grandma's peach cobbler. Okay. okay. Any Wait, any dessert like that. that has fruit inside that is baked is automatically better than any other dessert. Hmm. Now the reason the apple pie from McDonald's is the best because I did just refer it, to other all desserts, black grandmas <laughs> is is because of the convenience. I can get an uh, apple pie twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, but whenever I want. Is it as good as your? Of no. course not. Okay. Of course not. Yeah. But. My, I can't go to my black grandma's house <laughs> and get a peach gobbler or an apple pie whenever I want. Oh. Okay, I, well, your grandma might listen to this, you know, maybe. Yeah, she could be a little offended. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would love to, but I can't. <laughs> my favorite dessert is one called Spoyatel. And basically what you do is you really thin out the... Um, you know, you thin out the dough a lot through a pasta maker. Is it like a crochet kind of thing? Uh, it's... Uh, ish. I guess you could say. But it, it's layered. Uh, they call them lobster tails sometimes, but they don't make them the same way when they call them lobster tails. When they call them lobster tails, they're not as good. These look but good. They just yeah. have really good filling, and they're really... It's nice to make with family, because it takes a long time, and it's it's a good it's a good thing. I really like those. And I think the last question we want to end off is... Um, well, now we're back to another serious one. Yeah, well, but I think this one has a good message to yeah, it. Yeah, not not as serious. How do you feel about social media? How do you feel about social media? I'm gonna well, end off with mine. I'll okay. end off with mine. Okay, I, I guess Sean, you wanna start? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Social media, it's kind of a, a buffer in between my activities, uh, which is why I spend a lot of time on it. <laughs> um, you because it's really accessible anywhere. Um, I I kind of hate to bring it up again, but like with Kobe Bryant's death. I, I didn't know about it. I, I probably wouldn't have known about it uh, nearly as quickly as I did without going Twitter. on Twitter. Yeah. And so, like, I, social media, it can, it's an extremely quick, like, news source, in, in essence, just because everyone's, there's a lot of people on there, and everyone is, everyone's always worried about what's happening next. Um, so I'm going to look at it from a different perspective. I think social media is extremely important for society, specifically um, looking at it through the business world. Um, as we're advertising um, for Roundnet Club, I think it's extremely important. We've been able to reach people that we definitely wouldn't be able to reach yeah. before. Um, especially, this is kind of a side topic, but um, Spike will actually develop their own social media platform, which has actually allowed us to receive more people to Roundnet Club than we ever had before. Um, so I think, and not just around that club, obviously, but um, businesses that are able to not only be on the social media platforms, but also advertise on those platforms, it's extremely beneficial. And I think social media has its detriments, like the ability of stalking and, um, mm. you know, people can feel bad when they see other people's posts. And it, it can decrease face-to-face -face communication, but it also has this profound impact on staying connected with people. I mean, you can see what people are have been doing, and know, you know, how they've been if you see them years later after the last time you had contact with them. So I think that's really an important uh, benefit: staying connected with people who I, you know from school or business. I agree with that uh, with like a very large extent, um, because especially after I moved to Texas, mm -hmm. I kind of just thought I would lose all my friends from Indiana, 
but and, and it was true for a while but then as I got older um, we kind of all like rediscovered each other on uh, just different uh, social medias and like it's a great way to, that you can like connect over long distances and that's how my mom keeps in touch with like her family back in India and so social media can have this overall impact um, like this positive impact but you, like like you were saying you have to be wary of the, like the negative sides of it like the stalking and having people like track your location and <laughs> actual crazy stuff that people will go out the way to actually carry out and do so there there are both like positives and negatives to social media as a whole and I'm gonna end off with this note um, so here's my dilemma with social media um, and I think it relates to the entire discussion we've had today um, so I have been kind of fortunate enough to see both sides of the social media aisle. I've used social media for business purposes extensively. I've used Facebook ads, Instagram ads. Um, I've analyzed Twitter algorithms, etc. I've analyzed all these social media algorithms. And I've come to the conclusion that, hey, obviously, social media is so darn useful for businesses. And mm-hmm. it helps you so much. I mean, the amount of data that I can view about someone else to, that I've never even met or don't know or know nothing about <laughs> is incredible. But at the same time, it's also insane, and I think it's personally really dangerous. Um, but businesses use it a lot, and I use it a lot. I'm not saying that um, it's something that um, is uh, so ex- is such that something that. <laughs> Uh, Andrew is holding up his shirt for um, RoundNet, but yeah, I kind of want to get back to my point here and talk about the fact that for businesses nowadays, it has become essential. Mm-hmm. Especially for companies that are looking to break um, into an industry and a market. But that's completely different from my personal viewpoints. Personally, I hate social media, and I'll tell you why. Wow. Oh, very extreme. I think that it's it oversimplifies and um, and overcomplicates as well the many things that we take for granted in life. For example, like if you go to Instagram, right, you see these constant glorifications of life, and especially like for example, when you see someone. I was having a discussion this uh, someone with this the other day. Um, when you see someone who you know their life is nothing like that, right. they post something that is mm-hmm. completely the opposite. And um, and same goes for Snapchat um, and um, and Twitter and Facebook. But the one good thing I'll say about Twitter is that it's so easy to get news. Yeah. And I think it is yeah. the best news source um, yeah. Yeah. Of today. Moments are really useful. Yeah. yeah. But I'll say this, that uh, personally, I think going forward, especially with the recent death of Kobe Bryant um, and all we've talked about today in the first uh, question that we had, um, how do you get over someone you lost? I think it is really important to make an effort to stay connected with someone whether it be through social media whether it be through messaging whether it be through in-person communication whatever it may be find that person or find whatever whoever you're looking for uh, your loved ones your family members your friends and let them know um and that's kind of the message we want to leave you uh, off for today um tell your loved ones and family friends you love them Mama thank you. you in a good way podcast love is y'all. signing off and happy black history month